I had a friend who uh, her who moved with her mother to Maine when she was in high school. So her mother's brother had been a back to the land hippie, and then when uh, when her mother retired from teaching school in Long Island, she followed him up to Maine and bought a farm. One summer, they decided to raise, I believe it was. 1,500 or 2,000 chickens, and uh, this was the summer we were 16, and she slaughtered them all uh, on her own in their uh, USDA-certified slaughterhouse in their converted garage. Wow, they had like a... High wing competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so we. I remember this one day when we, my mom was driving us both to the movies. Welcome to the Parlor listeners. This is Two in a Bottle. I'm Brandon Harrison, chosen my co-captain, co-pilot, and co-trap music lover, DJ D Dollars. What's up, DJ? Riverdale, Riverdale, Riverdale. Uh, you're listening to that new Two Chains. I am. I mean, I would say that Two Chains loves his gas, but we have a uh, Rose. Rose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went in the the the, the spirit house and. Uh, I accidentally asked for rose instead of rose, and the guy looked at me crazy. I was a little ashamed. He gave you the Scooby Doo. Yeah, I didn't feel like the, the 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 gentrifier I was expected to be. I don't know. I mean, sometimes you can't live up to the gentrification pressure. Or maybe I just wasn't cultured enough. That's what it is, and you accept yeah. that it's okay. Yeah. You don't. We don't have to know everything, people. But we have to try. We <laughs> we can act like it. Yo, I have to I have to plug in. Um, rest in peace, my man, Prodigy yes. of Mob Deep. I was a big fan. He passed yesterday. Um, I'm not sure for, through, for what, Hilton. because he died in Las Vegas, so you can die of like, any type of thing, although he does have... I thought he, he was did, sick. Though. He did have sickle cell anemia. That's, a, that's what it is, right? Sickle cell anemia? Yeah. Correct. Okay. But he died in Las Vegas, so there's no telling. They, they haven't really come out with any cause of death. Um, but nevertheless, um, was a pivotal figure in 90s hip-hop, along with Havoc of uh, Mob Deep. Was a big fan growing up. The grimiest group, one of the grimiest groups of all time. The Infamous is a classic. Hell on Earth is a classic. Murder music is almost a classic. But that's all I'm gonna say. It's like, yo, oh, you know what I really brought him up though? Yeah. Uh, sometimes tangents happen. Um, <laughs> I saw an excerpt from a CNN article summarizing his life, right. and they said his great 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 ex great uh, grandfather was, was a Batman. No. It was, was, it was some kind of important figure. I remember you saying Yeah, that. it was William Jefferson White. Oh, from Morehouse, right? <laughs> yeah, he yeah. founded Morehouse. Yeah. It's a small world, yeah. And then his super great grandson wound up being a, a gangster rapper. We, weird small world again. Last year when I was at the film festival, one of the filmmakers who, who like, I did, ha- had invited to the festival wrote his book. Like the, his book came out the previous year, just last year. Yeah, yeah, My Infamous Life, right? Man. Yeah, so, it, it made yeah. rounds. It was a pretty good book. All right, let's so, put the train back on the track, man. So we, we're putting the train on the tracks, and we're going to segue to our guest because, as you alluded to, yes, great rapper Albert Prodigy Johnson, longtime chronic illness sufferer. <laughs> it's not funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's cell anemia. It's real. It's real. And our guest, not a doctor, but a doctor. Right, TJ? That, that's, that's, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, I'm a fan of nepotism. I don't know about you. It's great. Especially when, when it works well. When you're winning. When you're winning. I mean, I, I take all my cues from, from my president. I do. So, you know, you got to put your family on. Um, but in this case, uh, our, our guest is 
is more than worthy of, 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 of grace in the pod. She said it was an honor. I said, no, I'm an, it's an honor to have you here, Danya. Um, we have a, a faculty member, a teacher, right, instructor mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, Brooklyn Institute. Um, were there any more adjectives as part of the, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Institute? Institute for social, for social I knew I was going to say that. I swear <laughs> I was going to say that, but I didn't want to be wrong. Um, but yeah, it's my cousin, my own kin, Dr. Donya Glebow. I still love it when I got the doctor in front of my name. You I'm, should. I'm still a fresh doctor, a little bit more than a year. So. I know, but you worked hard for that. I remember when I found out, I was like, damn, Donya, I got a doctorate. <laughs> it's late. Does it feel good? Is it way heavy? Do you have to do something now with your knowledge? Oh, I don't know. It depends on the day. <laughs> some days it feels good to have it done, and some days it means there's a lot more to do. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Danya thinks she's not interesting. She's honestly one of the most interesting people I know. Drop it. Drop the resume. I mean, she just, she, we'll, we'll talk about it, but she, <laughs> she, she is talking about some, some high-level stuff. Um, I have uh, my hands in a lot of projects. Yeah, she's done a lot, a lot of writing, a lot of studies, teaching. Um, she's just, just a very good person to know. I was happy to kindle this relationship her, with her um, and the rest of my extended family and my adult life moving to Brooklyn. And um, she's been an interesting person uh, since someone to Aww. watch. She's cool, Thank man. Diane doesn't think she's cool. She's fucking cool <laughs> as hell to me. I don't know. Doing cool stuff is cool to me. It's also good to have an excuse to sit down and chat. I live two and a half blocks away. I walk by your house pretty often, twice right? Twice a day. I know. And, uh, <laughs> we always talk about what kind of... I've only know, been here once We're going to hang out. Yeah. It's cool. It's all love, though. It's happening. And now I know what you're doing when you're busy. So. Yeah, I'm up here baking, uh, not food, <laughs> recording but... Recording podcasts. Yeah, recording podcasts and um, imbibing uh, alcoholic beverages. Well, DJ's great, too. I'm okay. He's, he's a good guy. There's a lot of cool stuff. Oh, here. thank you, Brandy. You're trying to talk about <laughs> I'm not the guest right now. I'm not the guest, so it's cool. Um, we're, this, this, we're, we're putting the spotlight on. Uh, Dr. Danya here. <laughs> so, if I can ask a question, if I can jump in. Sure. For all the listeners who don't know, and especially the Brooklynites, because we, we're heavy in Brooklyn, right? Heavy. Heavy. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly are you guys doing at the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research? Uh, so the Brooklyn Institute is a teaching and research institute based here in New York City. Uh, many of our classes go on in Brooklyn, um, as the name would suggest. Um, so uh, we're an independent uh, nonprofit, uh, really focused on community-based education um, at a really uh, high, rigorous level, uh, yet still tailored for working adults. Um, so I am trained as a medical anthropologist, uh, science and technology studies uh, scholar, and so I teach a lot of classes about philosophy of technology, about feminism and technology, and about anthropology and ethnography. Um, we have people uh, studying literature, philosophy, political theory, um, really anything you can think about, uh, or anything you can think of in a sort of liberal arts uh, bucket. So this is like a community education, like on next level. Yes, yeah. It's like graduate <laughs> seminars, but fun and no pressure. Uh, but but yeah, uh, really high level scholarship. Uh, you know, all of us are sort of actively writing and researching, uh, but also really committed to teaching and to teaching in a way that is really engaging and connecting with people's lives and and the interests and experiences that they bring as adults to the class. 
Awesome. Okay. Before we get ahead of ourselves, I don't know if they drink regularly during your courses. They do, actually. Oh, they do? One of my classes right now goes through a box of wine every night, which is the drinkingest class I've had yet. If you don't know, listeners, that's classic academia. <laughs> Pretty wine, much. Wine is just... <laughs> and, and, Especially for evening seminars. And, and, and Danya gave the, the writer before, before uh, the pod. Yeah, she said, not box of wine, but glass of... Rosé, not rose. <laughs> so we, my fault, sorry. Nah, it's cool. Um, it goes with the motif of the pod. So, yeah, before we get out of ourselves, let's, let's pop this. I'm not, I'm not a Francophone. I'm not good with my French, so can oh, someone read time? this? Okay. Danny, you're better than me. It is an Esprit Gassier Côte de Provence 2016. Oh, Côte de Provence. What's the little triangle called? What? The little triangle. <laughs> what what oh, triangle are you talking about? The little triangle. Cold. De Provence. What Cup is de Provence? above the O? What's up, what is that above the O? Oh, it's an accent, accent. that it's actually re- doesn't tell you much about how to pronounce it. It's a regular accent. It's, it's not uh, some sort of, you always have names. It's not like umlaut, you know. Umlaut, it's an umlaut. accent I goo, but it's been a while since I was in a French class. Ah, so. She can just <laughs> uh, read Basically, it. it's, it's mostly just an artifact of how the word used to be spelled. There used to be an S between the O and the T. Oh, <laughs> See, this is why I had to do a PhD. It just like sinks in; it never leaves my brain. Just get so. random, random yeah. facts. Yeah, that's a fourteen-year-old fact. So that's awesome. Yeah. Now we gotta get it open. All right. The struggle. And it's DJ. still chilly, even though it's warm in here. Yeah, I had it. I had it personally chilled. Excellent. What does that mean? <laughs> you no, nah, they just ice around it? No, they just they just had they just had a few tangibly chilled. Uh, oh, that you called ahead. No, no, I showed up though. It's at the store. It's DJ. They know Get people. People are looking for cold pink wine in June. Exactly. Uh, ah, it's it's very uh, linen <laughs> pant, like you know. Indeed. Yo, I've been on the. I've been on the. Um, I'm shopping for those. Oh yeah. It's getting it's getting hot yeah, outside, it's getting yo. Crazy. Yeah, I can't wear wool. I was about to wear wool pants today. You looked at yourself. And I was like, like, like I'm <laughs> tripping. Yeah, so I don't want to do that. Oh man. All right, so it's pop. Okay, so let us... Um, the lecture begins. Yeah, the lecture <laughs> begins. Hmm. I'm going to try to act like I know what I'm doing. What, no, what notes do you have there, DJ? Danya? Grapes. Grapes. <laughs> uh, it's delicious. Fruity. Red fruit. Red fruit. Awesome. So now that we're, you, you guys ready prepared. Yeah, you kind of pooped on the party. You didn't want to partake, you know, but it's cool. You know, I'm beginning to become an old man. I, I don't want to fall asleep on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but as we're lubricated, this is how you begin all important, heavy talks. We have a medical anthropologist here, which, in my limited knowledge, I will go and say, what do people do in the <laughs> of, their, of medicine, the history of people and medicine, and how they relate with it? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so um, my particular focus in medical anthropology is Western medicine, which we call biomedicine. So this kind of combination of scientific biology and medical practice. Um, And uh, so some of the things that I do in my research is follow doctors around in hospitals and clinics, uh, interview people involved in patient support groups or uh, grappling with a particular condition, uh, go to medical conferences and uh, patient-focused summits, um, and also just kind of follow along what people are saying online, following specialized uh, magazines and, and things like that around uh, health and wellness. Um, so really trying to get a 360 view of 
of uh, where medical knowledge comes from, how it travels between experts and patients and patient allies, and uh, what new forms of social life it motivates. So I look very much at the contemporary. You guys are, are have some wide eyes now. <laughs> that was a mouthful, maybe. <laughs> well, I don't want to jump over DJ. And his, uh, nah, go ahead. You got it. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you know, in all these journeys. So I study food allergies also, to be very, uh, like, descriptive about it. Do you have it. any food allergies? I do, actually. Is that what it was? Or was it those damn peanuts put you on this journey? So it's like wasn't Spider-Man. peanuts, actually. No, it was fish. Oh, fish, yeah. Itself? Not yeah. seafood, but fish? Uh, yeah, certain kinds of fish. Ah. Salmon and tuna, specifically. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know they were related. <laughs> uh, they are only very distantly related, but my body thinks they're really closely related. Interesting. Yeah. So I went through the whole diagnostic process, and it was super confusing, and uh, it seemed like there were a lot of things that were um, sort of known, uh, that there were tests to detect certain things, but it wasn't always clear how what the test detected mapped onto actual symptoms could have a negative test and be sick, or you could have a positive test and be well. Uh, so I, you know, I was interested in some of these diseases where the categories of what counts as a disease were really fuzzy, and food allergies seem to be a really interesting I've one. always heard that about allergies. Mm. Um, I don't have allergies, but I'm told that I'm supposed to get them or, you know, oh, no. oh you don't get them until you're older. Or it's, <laughs> you just, it's just this yeah. vagueness of what exactly happens or how you're supposed to get it or care for it. So it's pretty interesting that yeah. I had to dig in there and figure out what exactly is going on. Is, yeah, there, yeah. is there a historical perspective of allergies or like how they come to be? I still don't really know. I guess it's like a human defense mechanism, but... Your histamines, right? You get too hype or you're overly charged. <laughs> yeah, histamines are involved. They're actually involved kind of down the line in the allergic process. Uh, when you have a reaction, it's actually the histamine release that is one of the very last things that happen, um, but they make you very itchy and swollen and, and mm. uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so it is this dysfunction in uh, immune function, um, sort of altered state, altered function, uh, really described scientifically in the early 1900s. Um, but it seems to be something that people have experienced in one way or another uh, for a long time, even though they didn't necessarily identify it as an allergy. You just right. had to go stand in the shed or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this whole, there was this the whole industry, actually, of people uh, in the 19th, late 19th and early 20th century sort of getting on trains and uh, traveling around the U.S. looking for a place where they wouldn't have allergies in the spring or the fall. So there are, there are still sort of legacies of that in terms of where some of the main allergy hospitals or, uh, or respiratory centers are based on where there weren't allergies 100 years ago. So it's like, I guess, what locations are the least pollen influenced? The dry flatland yeah. somewhere or like California or something? Desert. So one of the places people went to uh, was actually northern Michigan uh, huh. because it was so remote. It didn't have the trees that people were getting <laughs> allergic to in the cities and in the suburbs. Uh, that's changed now, of course, right? As you have trains taking people into the country, you also have trains tracking in weed seeds and the right. allergens following the people. Um, also, deserts were once a very good place, but again, now we have houses with lawns and deserts, and we plant trees in them from other parts of the world, and we bring our allergies with us. Damn. Can't escape, man. Yeah. I always think... It's the Anthropocene. <laughs> Anthropocene. 
We can talk about the Anthropocene. You know about the Anthropocene, DJ. You saw me talk about it. It's the the, the era of the world affected by humans, correct? Exactly. All right. I'm in it. I'm in it, guys. Yeah. Yeah. The the world is so fundamentally shaped by humans now that we're in a literally different era. And we need to think about how to describe that and what, what politics, what ethics, and also what scientific inquiry we can have in this time. Sips wine. Steep in the pot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always think uh, like a few, how, how terrible life was a few hundred years ago. Yeah, we've moved quickly. For sure. No indoor plumbing and no modern medicine. People used to die just from getting a cold and shit. Like, yeah. Damn, I got a cold. Let your die. blood. Oh, it'll get better. And you just bleed out. And die <laughs> Crazy time. Leave him there. He'll be all right. <laughs> but we're advancing. We're advancing. So I had to ask you this. I, I was thinking about it for a while. Let's say... My guy, an enemy of the pod, Donald Trump, comes to you. He comes, he says, Danya, uh, I need you to fix this health care. It's really bad. It's very bad. You've been following around doctors and hospitals and other things, like you said. So you must be smart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Donald Trump would be interested in my <laughs> particular brand of smarts, but sure. Well, what if, if Obama said he wasn't interested, then he would become interested. If you had to like develop some sort of plan on a base level, not necessarily all the ins and outs, but what would be the best way to fix what's going on now? Because we see doing it behind closed doors or whatever is. Well, <laughs> well let's preface this. Uh, it, are you saying? Just, are we putting her in the position of like a health policy expert? Is is that your expertise? We're, 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 we're putting her in the position of someone who understands the methods and mechanisms of the healthcare industry and how people are diagnosing patients. Okay. As okay. An ex- she's an expert, right? You can put her on CNN and yelling at people. You can put anybody on CNN yelling at people, though. I, well, think, you you, I one, think you're required to yell at people mm, if you want to. Well, you put one smart person and one, like, just blowhard, right? That's how it <laughs> yeah. works. Like yelling at a wall. I don't know. Are you into, are you into yelling at walls? No. Okay. Well, in this case, um, yeah, but if, if that's your expertise... Um, I don't know if you would want to narrow it down to uh, allergy policy or something like that. Uh, I don't think it needs to be that specific. Well, well there you go. Go. Open-ended question. Save us, please. Save us. <laughs> save <laughs> us, please. That's a tall order. I went to the doctor this morning. I was just like, no, a lot of problems. <laughs> I'm a patient. Help me down. Yeah. I mean, one of the... There are so many issues... I mean, there are issues in terms of how uh, health care research is done. There are issues in terms of who makes the decisions about what we study in terms of health care, right? Whether we study acute conditions or chronic conditions, uh, whether we're studying uh, drugs that maintain health or drugs that are seeking to be a sort of magic uh, cure to a, a condition once it's started. Um, so there, there are a lot of research side questions, and there are also a lot of questions about allocation of resources right. on, the, on the patient side. Um, and then there are also questions of, you know, who we want to consider worthy of care. And I think that's one of the really basic questions uh, around healthcare policy and around the, the conversations around the AHCA right now. Um, is everyone worthy of care? I mean, I think that's a really fundamental question that uh, is at stake when people are debating, for example, whether or not we should have some kind of universal or single health payer, single payer healthcare system. Um, 
is everyone worthy of care? I think that's a question that we've been able to defer for a lot of the 20th century because yeah. of the way that healthcare kind of goes along with veterans benefits or old age benefits or, uh, uh, or benefits from an employer. Um, and as sort of patterns of work and lifespan are changing, we actually have to confront this question. So, so yeah. I, yeah. So it's a big philosophical question yes. at stake in a lot of these very internecine and, and vitriolic uh, policy debates. Yeah, I mean, it's a philosophical question, but they're solving it with just rhetorical political uh, positions. Like, with band-aids I, and, and scotch. Yeah, yeah, I mean, addressing yeah. the question. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, well, they are, but refusing to acknowledge that they have made Yeah, yeah. I, I would say <laughs> right, right, it, right, it would right. be, you know, we would be much better off as a country if it wasn't just purely as rhetorical as it is. Because essentially, the conservative position is... You know, you get your own damn health care, right? right? Like, exactly. it's just based on the market. Yeah. That's how they really would envision it, but essentially, right, yeah, they can't say that because even reasonable people, like, that, that just doesn't sound good. And um, Obama and the Democrats, they've already pushed an agenda a little forward and more closer right, to the to a single-player type of system. Yeah. So they can't really rescind all of the shit and really just kick all the tens of millions of people that have gained health care uh, plans. Right. I mean, even Republicans years. are realizing that they can't rescind all of this, right? I mean, yeah, they're under yeah, tremendous yeah. pressure from yeah. their constituencies and then, as well. And, and then, you know, the insurance companies. Do they exactly. want constant chaos every year? We're going to cut it off. We're going to change it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we just want to make money in peace. Exactly. It's, it's so fascinating that insurance companies, right, these, these uh, entities that we think of as the enemy of the little person and, and sort of greed, greedy corporate, uh, you know, wizards behind the curtain pulling on the, all, the, all the strings, um, but they're actually very much in line with some of the more centrist and progressive democratic platforms of like, let's put a system in place that works for most people, that gives people access to health care, um, and let's keep it stable <laughs> for a number of years. Of course, where the industry and the uh, sort of progressive uh, perspective changes is whether or not, as DJ was saying, you get access to health care in a market-based system where individuals are responsible for paying a large amount of the cost of their care, or whether mm -hmm. it's a system that's supported by federal or state dollars. I mean, I think the biggest thing about what you said, which it's interesting how it, it ties in with drugs and drug costs and who's taking the drugs. This is whole heroin epidemic. Thing. Yeah. And it's like all of a sudden I saw this commercial a few weeks ago. Some girl, I'm Sarah. I live in New Jersey. This is Chris Christie. He's taking care of me because I was on heroin. Feel sad for me. So now there's this whole... Hold on, Chris Christie had a, a, has, it's a, this whole a positive campaign. commercial? I watch Jeopardy. So <laughs> between, There's nothing wrong with that. No, but between seven... We know we love Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek is one of the patron saints of the podcast. A friend of the pod. From 7 to 7.30, I see all of these local commercials and local ads. And there's always this ad about what they're doing in New Jersey to combat the heroin epidemic. And it's just interesting about who is worthy of care. Like, all of a sudden now... This is the issue that we have to have commercials about. Hold on, what she look like? What do you mean she look like? She what does she look like? She's like Kylie Jenner. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Kylie Jenner. A lot to unpack there. I know. Hold on, <laughs> Kylie Jenner is, is trying to look like. Uh, uh, no, she's trying to look. I was trying to make a black name like Kenyatta Jenner. I don't know. She's trying to look like Beyonce and shit. Pre surgery. Pre surgery. All right, there we go. All right, pre smaller lips. 
Small yes. lips. All right, now we're on the same page. Well, like, in terms of your knowledge of history, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. What has been the shift? And I don't want to just say it's a racial thing because, like, that's the easiest thing to, to say. But Sometimes easy is, is, is correct. It, it, it is, but Sometimes. in terms of even justifying the shift or actually acting upon it, because maybe they're not even acting upon it. They just seem to care more and are actually aren't going to provide the services and things like that. Yeah, I mean, to me, the so I've, I'm not super up to date on the New Jersey uh, plan, but I know that Chris Christie has been uh, promising, I don't know if there's a bill yet, but I know he's at least been promising to increase funding for, uh, for, <laughs> for heroin addiction uh, treatment and, and potentially research as well. Although, like I said, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details, but I know he's been talking about uh, heroin addiction treatment, opiate addiction treatment, um, and it seems incredibly unhelpful to me to single out a particular condition at this moment when, as you're both suggesting, it's like becoming a problem in mostly white suburbs where it's, you know, then it gets covered by local journalists and then it gets into the news and then it becomes sort of part of the public consciousness as a, as a, um, as a health problem rather than as a crime problem. Um, so, so it seems incredibly short-sighted to focus in on one condition as it's uh, becoming associated with a particular population. Um, I mean, what about all of the things that would lead up to opiate addiction? Potentially use or addiction to other drugs, um, potentially uh, some kind of family crisis um, uh, that sort of precipitates a mental health issue or uh, just sort of general feeling of hopelessness and looking for escape, um, or um, a, a potential health issue, an unresolved uh, back pain or something like that that gets yeah. someone uh, using prescription painkillers and then seeking to continue um, continue using a, a similar substance when the supply of that becomes too expensive or becomes cut off by a physician. Um, so it seems incredibly short-sighted to focus on the end result of all of these potential social and medical disruptions. Um, I mean, the other thing is, um, so there's, there's this concept in sociology uh, and anthropology and medicine called medicalization. Um, and it's this idea that, um, that one way that societies, at least in the last couple of hundred years, um, often deals with a social problem is to redefine it as a medical problem, right? So, and I think you see this with uh, kind of the trajectory mm. of opioid addiction, right? Where, okay. you, you know, you sort of formally, especially in New York City in the 1970s, 1980s, you get this rhetoric of drug use as a crime, Correct. right? And it's, and it's something that requires policing and specifically policing of communities that sort of can't protest or communities that are most affected by dependence on uh, on this class of substances, specifically black communities. Um, but, um, but then there's this kind of reconfiguration that happens, you know, a lot of it driven by patients who don't want to be seen as criminals to kind of redefine the condition as a medical condition, as something worthy of care, uh, as something that experts should pay attention to, as something deserving of compassion. Um, and so now we see that framing around opiate addiction rather than a, a criminal framing, but it also coincides with this sort of demographic and spatial shift of um, the statistics about, uh, about these sorts of addictions um, 
you know, coming out of uh, majority white or suburban uh, locales. So uh, I'm not necessarily saying there's a causal relationship there, but it is, uh, there is a sort of a shift over time in how we think about addiction as a crime or as a, a medical condition and in sort of who becomes the face of it. And then how All we right. deal with that. <laughs> Dr. Danya, what's up? Well, Welcome I mean, to medical uh, sociology. Trying to, bounce, trying to bounce off you, man. Like, <laughs> oh, no, we're bouncing. Okay. The last part, I feel like I, I, you know, I asked so many questions. I'm trying to... No, let, 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 let's, let's uh, shift gears. We're shifting gears? I have one more gear to ask. Damn. All right. No, no, it's cool. Go ahead. I'm playing with you. <laughs> cool. What's up? In, you know, in your research or even maybe your colleagues or things that you're aware of, is there anything on the front end with this prescription pill thing that is supposedly changing with this uproar and uh, addiction or is it like, well, you know, this is not our fault. We just make the pills. You know, it's becoming huge in culture. Everyone's rapping about prescription drugs. It's just such a thing that's omnipresent. Has there been any political or even inside corporate academic pressure that we need to do something about the way we prescribe or even the way we make these drugs? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of political uh, pushback against the sort of widespread prescribing of of opiates um, for medicinal uses. I mean, you you see, uh, New York State in particular um, has uh, you know has uh, tracking systems to sort of uh, very closely monitor how often patients are getting uh, refills of these kinds of prescriptions. It's not the only state. It's one that I'm familiar with because I've been here for a while. Um, but um, but there's also an interesting thing sort of thinking about how addiction is now so often framed as medical. Um, there's also a push to come up with new medicines that would treat the addiction. Right. So, oh, no. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so there there are there are options for for treating opiate addiction um, and there is sort of more money being put behind some of those uh, medical interventions, specifically pharmaceutical interventions. So there's a really interesting set of questions here. It's like we're treating drug use with more drug use. Um, and it's also this kind of marketization question as well. Right. There's yeah. also a new market for treating this problem. Uh, that's oh, yeah. in like part that. a side effect from the opiate market in the 1990s like nicotine. and 2000s. Mm, yes. exactly. nicotine, yeah, nicotine and then nicotine patches. Yeah. Yeah. Opiates and then opiate antagonists. Drug pushers. <laughs> ah, yes. So it's an opportunity, man. Make, mar- market making, right? Market making. You know all about this. Well, I don't know about the <laughs> drugs to fix uh, <laughs> opiate addiction, but do know about an opportunity that, that presents itself. Um, here, do live in a capitalist society. <laughs> No, let, let, let's, let's shift gears just a little. Yeah, you know, get my Fast and Furious on. Um, ethics, technology ethics. Yes, take all the wind. And I can adjust the oscillation so it just points to you in the yeah. moment. But We're warm up here. It's sixth floor on a sunny day. Yes, yes. Uh, the pod, the parlor gets warm. Indeed. On occasion. No, um, yeah, what are, what are the new or, or uh, most relevant conversations nowadays when it comes to um, ethical practices and... I guess the larger technology space is it based around um, artificial intelligence or um, uh, still some type of privacy, you know, Second Amendment or First Amendment? No, not Second Amendment, First Amendment type of rights, so on and so forth. Uh, If you can expound upon that, I think uh, it'll be a worthwhile uh, session. 
Yeah, I mean, so coming from this field of science and technology studies, one of the things that people in my field spend a lot of time studying is uh, users of technologies and thinking about how technologies are affecting users. Um, and so I think the, the surveillance question that you point to, DJ, is a big question about users, right? It, and it's in the news all the time now, right? What does it mean that we're surveilled on Facebook based on our clicks and our likes and the potential manipulation of our emotions uh, or our affiliations based on that? Um, I think that is a, a deeply ethical question, as well as a sort of questions about um, ad trackers or Google tracking us from like website to website. On, it's it's, it's affecting me a lot because I do a lot of uh, web window shopping, and then when I go mm. when I just go to another just a completely different website, it's just like the ads for the same website I just came to. Like yo, you want to get this, don't you? You want to get? I'm like fuck. After after there there are um, web pages online and stuff that that uh, give the steps for you to. Um, not be tracked as much by by ad services. Um, so I'll, I'll report back on that. Uh, <laughs> How do you feel about it, Donna? Do you feel, is it uncomfortable when you know it's like, oh, I, I really, I wanted a new necklace, and now, they're, of course, they're putting the ad right there. Is, is it like, or do you feel like as someone who's aware of it, it bothers you less than maybe somebody who doesn't really know of the inner structures of the ad game? I mean, it mainly just makes me feel personally really powerless. Right. I mean, it's somber. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it. I am not very good with protecting my privacy um, because it seems like um, difficult. It seems difficult and it seems like the goalposts are always changing. Right. As soon as there's a new version of ad blocker, there's a new uh, sort of set of uh, ad tracking technologies that are following you around and and getting around that. Um, So. and, and I saw a story uh, just this week about a company that actually has a, a way to de-identify, uh, or, or sorry, to re-identify people whose identities were anonymous uh, as they sort of move from website to website, as they log into uh, different websites, and that there were actually uh, healthcare uh, companies that were using this service. And so um, supposedly... When you sort of visit a website about a health condition, you know, it's there's a level of anonymity between you and between the drug companies or between uh, research organizations who might want to recruit you. Um, but this one organization, through using this ad tracking technology, actually reconnected uh, the identity of people visiting certain websites and the potential health conditions that they had, uh, which is an extremely scary thing and sort of violates every rule of medical ethics going back centuries uh so oh, so that know. was a very <laughs> right. well, of course like there's there's always breaches to the to the ethical rules um but this seems like it's going on in a scale that is particularly uh disturbing and invisible and invisible. difficult to get around for a user yeah um who decides ethics though i think well, that that question came to me question yeah you know like who is is there a, is there like a committee that meets once a week that you have to you know know somebody to get into or this <laughs> is a tug of war right one side versus the other side and whoever is the middle is a, the day whoever's in the middle is is lost is that what you're <laughs> well just you know it's how like the line of ethics and we're on the right side or the left side but 
maybe pulling one way or pulling the opposite way. Where, do, where does the power dynamic fit in that as well? The moneyed interest or yes. the government or uh, all those type of things? Because definitely the, the, I don't know if it's passed the Senate, but the House definitely passed some act that allows cable companies to um, sell your data to whoever's, whoever's yeah. buying. Right, and and all of your smart TVs are basically monitoring you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that data is, I think this. There was a, a recent settlement that said that that data is part of what could be sold. So. Oh yeah, fine. And, and that was yeah. part of wasn't that part of one of these uh, leaks that were going on? The, the CIA, CIA thing. Was, yeah. Was yeah. Yeah. Samsung TV. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Don't cop exactly. Samsung. But I mean, the thing about it is, is there's also this. Uh, I'm not saying to fight back, but you know. How do you scramble what you do to to mess with like these? Ad- I feel like people will always be at some level a step ahead. When it comes to technology, yes, because it's always just building upon itself, and everything on the internet to me is just like available in some some capacities. Yeah. It's just a matter of convenience and what steps you have to take to get to get to it. So. Um, if you have something on the internet, then yeah, it's like <laughs> just just gotta give in. Like there are certain things that I just you just have to give in. You have GPS on your phone, so if you're trying to do dirt, guys, listeners, don't oh. don't bring your iPhone. If you For listen, sure. if you listen to the serial, the first podcast, remember they tried to try to get them based on uh, cell phone tower evidence, mm-hmm. and that was in 2000. So it's only gotten better since then. Yeah, I mean, I think the question of like where ethics comes from and who it serves is mm-hmm. really different based on field and based on role. So if you're talking about something like medicine or law, there are uh, governing bodies made up of other doctors or other lawyers that have pretty strict rules about what you can and can't do, and they're in charge of licensing. Uh, and in most states, or in, in every state, there's also uh, regulations around uh, what it what you need to do to be able to be licensed as a doctor or as a uh, as a lawyer. Um, so in those professions, there's a very explicit set of rules and a very explicit set of punishments. Um, and then you get to sort of middle ground like uh, like company executives. So in business schools, you are uh, not only acculturated to the culture of business, but you're also often trained in uh, business ethics. Right. What business ethics is, is an open question, right? Is it about the ethics of how you do business with your fellow CEOs? Is it about the ethics of how you t- treat your customers? Is it both? Um, so so that there's kind of a hazy middle ground there and some definitional um, uh, sort of confusion. And then, but I think when you get to like tech companies where the philosophy is like, move fast and break things, right? It's all about disruption. It's all about throwing out the old rules and creating new rules. It seems like there's a much weaker framework for thinking about um, you know, who counts in terms of ethics, whether it's your fellow business people, whether it's your employees, whether it's your customers, um, and setting out any kind of industry standard rules for what I mean, those ethics like should be. It seems like with every new tech wave, whether it's an app or another company, the first step is like, oh, is this... Are we supposed to do this? Like, <laughs> right. it's like the, right. the Uber thing. It's like, oh, exactly. they don't have car insurance. Just <laughs> riding around, or you know, Amazon. Or they're going to bring drones outside of my house. Uh, can we do that? And I, it's really <laughs> odd that there's just sort of no consensus governing body. I think part of it is what you said about the business sort of culture of business and business ethics, and how that sort of is on the top of this opposing side with technology about, you know, freedom and the internet is exactly. egalitarian. Yeah. Right. 
That one is my. Yeah, there's like an anarchist like philosophy to the internet, right? At least in certain iterations, and it's very much reflected with the sort of ethical approach of Silicon Valley. And then it has to make money. It's sort of exactly odds with itself. It's it's weird. I wouldn't plug the Jason Bourne movie because it wasn't that good. <laughs> the last one. Have you guys seen the last one? I have not. I just watched it, yeah, I think, we, over the weekend. You're aware of the spirit of the Jason Bourne movies. I've seen one or two. Don't worry. No, but this one, they, they, they crammed in a lot of kind of uh, zeitgeisty current events. And there was the guy who played, who was in The, the Night Of... He's he's of I think Pakistani descent. He was in a bunch of movies. He was he was in Star Wars, um, Force Awakens, not Force Awakens, the one that came out in the, in the December. Rogue One. Rogue One, yeah, great movie. Um, very memorable. Very memorable, yeah. No, it was lit. Who Star Wars? <laughs> no, nah, but anyway, he played he played this you know thirty uh, something startup billionaire, and the 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 dialogue was just very heavy handed. It was him speaking with the the head of the CIA, he's like, I already gave you ac- back-end access to my servers. <laughs> what else do you want? <laughs> he was like, we want everything. Like, just, just very, very obvious shit. And then it showed him trying to be, like, ponderous about what is he doing, how is he, is, is he putting his, his, is, is he putting his, is, is he putting his users first or his country first when it comes to national That's security amazing. concerns? Yeah. Um, it was, it was very easily digestible. I'm sure. Um, but it, but that, that even is coming things. up is really indicative. There was also what's the other thing? What's that movie called? The uh, The Circle with Tom Hanks or Emma Watson? It's just like about this omnipresent tech company and all the moral. Oh yeah, that was the one that had a bunch of stars but flopped. Yeah, I mean, I didn't yeah, I've never heard cared of it. about it. But it <laughs> no, Tom Hanks, yeah, it came Watson, out recently. It, it had a star-studded cast and it flopped hard. It was apparently. like an Amazon, Apple conglomerate, the circle, and you know of the ethical yeah. ramifications of it controlling everything. There was another movie that came out maybe a year, year and a half ago about a whistleblower within a bank. Do you guys remember this movie? A bank whistleblower. Yeah. Um, no. I don't know, but but it it right. seems like there's like there there is this genre of film now of like like thinking about. You know, how do we stand up to the big bad corporation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've you know, I mean, it's obvious we turn into a corporatocracy uh, as a as a as a country. So yeah, I mean, it's an important question that has to be asked now. So I guess um, the media just reflects the the mood of the country of at, at the time. So that seems valid. But I feel like you were maybe you might have saying it, but you were on the cusp of saying something before before um, rudely Brandon rudely you. interrupted you. Sorry, could be wrong. Maybe not. All right, keeping it going. <laughs> yeah, I think we should keep it going. Yeah. That's fine. I'm now just... I'm thinking of movies about uh, technology and evil corporations. Oh, there, there. T- I mean, Terminator. There we go. Skynet is. Oh, I, ha- I had an common. '80s sci-fi movie moment a couple of years ago. It was really good. RoboCop is a terrific movie. RoboCop. Yeah, I mean, RoboCop is is. Yeah, I seems seen it so long. It's I, really good. Go the on the original. The animation is terrible. Though. At least what two when they had remember they had the the, the not the it wasn't an Android but it was like a a killing machine. Well, there's a new one. Not I'm the, thinking of the original. I'm thinking and, of RoboCop two. Oh, I'm thinking of back in business. That wasn't the name, <laughs> but nah, it's cool. <laughs> there was <laughs> a was guy the, in a robot suit walking. Yeah, around yeah, the yeah I'm no, in Detroit, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Man. It was also dystopian hellscape, right? Wasn't it like Detroit is just like out of just ridiculous? What year Overrun was, with what gangs. What year was Robocop supposed to be? 
was it like supposedly in this story set in eighty eight and they it's built the robot? It's probably in the eighties, man. You know, it was supposed to be the future, right? And they uh, built the robot. It was no, too long ago no, for me to I think remember. They built it. They built it. They they made RoboCop. No, it was in modern times. And the guy who the black dude that played the cop wound up being dad on Family Matters. I remember that. <laughs> Y'all remember that? His, his cop game was so strong. His cop game was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. what, I was, what I was trying to do, I was trying to shift gears again. Turn on the knives. Daniel was sort of talking about a little bit off by about uh, dystopian, dystopian futures and all things like that. Oh, yeah. Technology. It's been mildly media. melancholy on the pod, but I'm just saying. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I mean, I was trying to lighten it up by talking about dystopian. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, you know, the literary and you know, <laughs> history and interesting, you know, stories about dystopias and media. I bet you're interested in, in you know these stories. Star Trek Voyager. Talk about. That. Well, yeah. So I mean, I feel Trek. like Star Trek Voyager is not a dystopia at yeah, all. I was about if to anything, say. it's I, I, it's pretty I, utopian, I, but right. it's I sort of it's, responding to a imagined past dystopia, right? So the yeah. whole premise of Star Trek Voyager. Thank you. That was my question. And it's this very it, it, Star Trek Voyager is this uh, very sort of classic liberalism, right? Where everyone is an individual, but everyone is motivated by the right intentions and the right moral compass. Right. So if everyone makes their individual decisions collectively, then uh, then not only human society, but like hundreds and hundreds of alien societies will all be working together towards a glorious, peaceful future. Um, so it, it has a sort of utopian thrust. But in the background, of course, is, you know, well, what horrible... Uh, previous world where people living in that they all like woke up one day and decided that they needed to, uh, you know, work together to to bring this I, utopia I I to, was it the, to like, the universe. Was Earth like destroyed or something, or like not like Trump was president? And it was <laughs> like, oh shit, gotta get it together. Well, the whole plot of Voyager is they're trying to get back to Earth, so they they get right. sucked into uh, the Delta Quadrant. And they're trying to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. Oh, yeah. Of course, Earth is Alpha. Earth is the origin point. Uh, even though it seems like there are all these other civilizations that have been around for much much longer, hmm. um, so there is there is a, a nice sort of element of colonial fantasy there as well. Impressive. So with that utopian future, <laughs> is that what put you on this this path of enjoying Star Trek Voyager? You just wanted to go back and check things out, or you? Oh no, Diane's a huge nerd. Is she? Yeah. Yeah, you might not have guessed. No, I would never have guessed all this <laughs> knowledge and information. <laughs> yeah, you never knew that I was a nerd, right? Um, so my, I mean, Star Trek Voyager. It's uh, I grew up on Star Trek. So I grew up on an organic farm in a town of 800 people, and sometimes she the did. power went out during the winter or during a thunderstorm, and we just wouldn't have electricity for a couple of days. Um, but uh, my my mother, uh, DJ's great aunt, everyone's favorite aunt, gotcha. was both a back to the land hippie and a techno utopiast. Uh, so great, so great script, great aunt, <laughs> <laughs> which is not as uncommon as, as you would think, um, but is sort of left out of our sort of history of radicalism in, in the United States, that these two things can actually go together. Um, but uh, so I grew up on Star Trek and I grew up on like 
never wearing shoes and picking strawberries with my hands in the summer if I was hungry. Uh, and, and so I watched a lot of Voyager and just kind of wanted to go back to it. But it turns out that all of the classes I've been teaching about feminist futures and the politics of infrastructure and cyborgs and cybernetics uh, is super relevant to a show like Star Trek. So doing a, a lot of thinking as well as reminiscing to the old days and the farm life. Can't think of a better way to do it. <laughs> now, you said the politics of infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Now, we know our country is crumbling. It's crumbling. LaGuardia shithole. Our, our city. <laughs> oh, gosh. Our, our city. I will pay hundreds of dollars more to go to another airport. JFK, yeah. The usually. one thing he was right about. <laughs> Not sure he's going to do about it, but uh, yeah. Um, are you familiar at all with um, the, 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 the infrastructure conversation um, in New York City? We are New York-centric. So we are um, MTA. I understand I that. Eight. I understand our MTA is uh, has infrastructure from like the 30s, and it appears it's time for us to upgrade. Um, I know I'm experiencing delays. I, I believe you are as well, Brandon. I was late today. He was late. I'm usually late, but that's for a different reason. <laughs> um, yeah, are, are you familiar or not? I don't want to pick your brain if you're if you're not. But I I read certain um, essays and. Uh, explainers or, or current MTA employees just explaining what's happening. It's like, shit's just fucked up, man. Like, <laughs> we just don't have a budget. It takes a lot of energy and time. People don't want to really invest the time and money into doing it. So, Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a super expert on the New York City subway, although I'm certainly an expert at trying to take it. And Navigate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. And uh, uh, being impeded from getting to where I need to be. Um yeah, I mean, there, you know, it, it's much less sexy to maintain infrastructure than to build it or than to disrupt it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Uber is incredibly popular in New York City, and so is the subway, but Uber is way sexier, right? Uber sexy. is a, it's algorithms. Black, and it, ca- black Camrys. Yeah, it's like black cars. Everyone can take a black car. And the Highlanders. Yeah, um, and, and it also has this, like, sort of bombastic, uh, or, or this bombastic sort of legend around uh, its culture and some of the people involved with the company, uh, whereas the subway is just, like, this old thing, not even just from the 1930s, like the elevated line above Broadway in Brooklyn was built in 1909, and it's made of wood. <laughs> Just think about that the next time you're on the JMZ. Uh, um, shout out to wood, though. <laughs> I don't ride the J. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. You might never know. Have you been on the above... Where is that, Marcy? Yeah. I've got there once upon a time. I know, but you get... The, the platform is like one foot wide in certain portions. That's a different conversation. Different too, too centric. But yeah. Um, but where do your where's your expertise lie in, in that? In Techno that, future. Right. It's not that. It's not that. Not there. <laughs> the infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like when it comes to infrastructure, I'm I'm really. I really break with the sort of futurist line. Like, I do actually think we need to uh, take more care in maintaining our infrastructures, Um, not only because um, they already exist, and there's, you know, if we made the decision to do it, the barrier to entry to maintain them rather than coming up with something entirely new, I have to imagine, would be lower. Um, But also, um, 
you know, people's lives revolve around the infrastructures that are already in place, right? And so there, there's, again, a sort of question of, like, whose lives and whose interests in society are we valuing, right? Are we valuing the people who can be... Uh, exactly. It all comes back to that. Um, or, or at least the question of for who's good. Right. Um, you know, are we valuing people in society who can take advantage of the newest algorithmic technology? Or are we valuing people who are on a budget and have to take the, the cheapest uh, option or the option with the widest coverage because they live very far from where they work? Um, and so, again, I think there's, you know, it's easy to value the new and it's easy to value things that are expensive and that are sexy and sexy. that will attract new people to a neighborhood or to a city. Um, but what actually would benefit more people is to maintain what we have and maintain the ways of life that have built up around that. So I have a question about your, your professorhood. Sure. Your knowledge. Um, I tried to do my Googles. I Googled. I got Donna Haraway and I got Cyborg Manifesto and I imbibed a mild amount of it. Excellent. But in this 2017, because this is the future, if you're not aware, I think about being, you know, 10 years old and being like, man, I wish I could call somebody with a video phone. Like all the stuff that we take for granted that really is like wild. It's pretty nifty. Wild shit that's happening. In that essay and in that philosophy about just cyborg identity and women and even maybe culturally if it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a physical technology what has come to pass um or has anything sort of fulfilled this idea or philosophy or do you see anything going in the future that will sort of manifest it uh if that's a question yeah <laughs> i mean so so the cyborg manifesto is a sort of canonical text text by this uh, philosopher, anthropologist, biologist, uh, Donna Haraway. Um, and it, like, you, like you're saying, it's as much about uh, sort of culture and identity and gender identities in particular as it is about our relationships to technology. And so I think the, you know, one of the questions um, she's uh, really trying to get us to think about there is sort of coming from this feminist perspective that's very attuned to um, that's very interested in in caring for others for society in society, and that's very interested in noticing and uplifting people and voices who've been overlooked. Right. The question is: Is technology going to help us uh, to uplift those people and those voices, especially women and especially people of color, uh, indigenous people, uh, immigrants, uh, workers, migrant workers? Right. All of these classes that are marginalized and excluded and oppressed in uh, in society at large and specifically in, in American society uh, or is technology just going to perpetuate some of these divisions and these hierarchies and these oppressions um, I mean I think I mean when we're talking about infrastructure it certainly seems like our approach to technology has has not been going in the liberatory direction and has been going in the perpetuation of, uh, of oppression and perpetuation of difference direction um, but I, I still don't think that necessarily has to be, right? Um, and, and so you see projects in New York, uh, for example, there are these uh, terminals that uh, let you charge your phone and connect to the internet I've used one of those on the before. sidewalk. Yeah, there's, there's one on my corner, and I don't understand why, because all the people outside there are people who live there, but they're still <laughs> there. 
Um, uh, so, so there are there are these terminals that are like supposed to be sort of granting you access to these resources like energy and Wi-Fi and these things that are becoming very sort of fundamental to success uh, in our city and in our society. Um, but at the same time, like it also gives the owners of the technology such a capacity to surveil, right? Okay. Um, and, and this and this is the talk that I hear on my corner every night when I walk by is the neighborhood folks like talking about how they're never going to use the thing because it's just going to surveil them. Right. And there's NYPD spotlights across the street that are also set up there to surveil them. So so they're you know, they're they're not particularly interested in this use of technology, but it has a libertarian possibility. It just isn't being realized. It isn't being operationalized in in a way that would um, truly um, foster connection and foster access to uh, to civic institutions, I think. Wow, wow. So like <laughs> don't laugh at me, DJ. We talk about infrastructure, but I, I was kind of like trying to bring it back to more the culture. Yeah, of course. Saying, like, is there anything with the philosophy, with the Cyber Manifesto that you see actually becoming more present in the culture or being realized? It's great that we have these NYC, what are those things called? Those stands? And, and NYC Link, is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Apparently they're very divisive. I, didn't, I thought they were cool, but you know, I'm, I'm a gentrifier, so I didn't think about it. <laughs> but maybe culture-wise, even in media technology, do you see that these philosophies are actually maybe coming in the past or being realized? Yeah, I mean, you know, another conversation that that paper is contributing to is this question of what identity means, right? And um, so the the paper comes out in uh, the uh, uh, mid-1980s, and you know, she's advocating for... Uh, moving away from thinking about identity as something that is intrinsic in an individual and that is fixed and that is easily definable and moving towards something that we might now call like intersectionality, right? So this idea of intersectional feminism that you can have multiple identities, uh, you can be both black and a woman and of a certain class and of a certain nationality uh, and that all of these things might together shape your life possibilities and your social networks and your um, your particular life trajectory, um, but that they are not sort of reducible one to the other, uh, and that you also shouldn't be sort of asked to reduce yourself to just being about your race or just being about your gender or just being about your class or your nationality. Um, so, so I think you know she is part of that conversation, which is which is very much mainstream now and very important, um, and I think we see it um, sort of uh, shaping some pretty prominent uh, pretty prominent activism or social justice uh, concerns like the women's march right I mean the the women's march was led by a very uh, diverse uh, set of women and they sort of enshrined some of these concepts of intersectionality without sort of calling it that um, in the way that they approached the march and who they invited to speak uh, in the uh, documentation about it. Um, so I think in that sense, the work she was doing in terms of uh, redefining identity as something that is more multiple and that is more uh, flexible and that might even change over the course of your life or through a particular interactions that you have with uh, capitalist systems or with technological systems uh, is is very much uh, something that is in the zeitgeist now. Um, and I mean, she she had a recent book that was uh, published 
And there were reviews of it coming out in like reasonably mainstream publications, uh, so outside of the normal academic uh, publishing circuit. So it, it's certainly a set of ideas that is uh, sort of filtering out into the culture. <laughs> I think it's time, DJ. The rosé is finished. Well, half of the one person's rosé bottle is finished. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll have more. <laughs> and summertime. Is today no. the first day of summer? It is. It is. It's solstice. solstice. Hey. Clink, 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 clink. Yoga clink. people are really excited about it. Oh, yeah? Is that a thing? I She's a know. yoga person. <laughs> I, That's uh, why she said that. I, I'm not always aligned with some of the, the mysticism, but I, I definitely hear it. <laughs> Standing tree. Standing tree. Standing yeah, that's a pose. Yeah. yeah. You know, I like yoga too. That's what you do? I, I, I'm a yoga fan. Slash Pilates if you, get, you got time. Oh, you in the Pilates? Sometimes you got you to gotta do it. Okay. Pilates is great. Yeah, you know, good yeah. for the core. The core. Stand up straight <laughs> and tall. All right. What I was really saying was the drink's finished, but we're still in the parlor. So we like to have a segment we call the parlor story. You got to imagine Use your imagination. Drop the music. You go off into a nice sunlit dock, dock, a patio. People are talking. Everyone's wearing white pants. It's summertime. Linen. <laughs> Linen is out. See a sucker. Me and DJ are there. DJ's pouring drinks. He's hanging around, talking. Gift the gab. Cigars are in mouths. Rosé's passing around. <laughs> You're holding court, Danya. We're all turning around, listening to you. Tell a story. Your problem story. <laughs> I honestly think the most interesting thing about me is that I grew up on an organic farm and managed to get a PhD. It's just a very unlikely trajectory. Maybe what, not. What is the more likely trajectory? That I grew up on an organic farm. Well, I guess that's a good point. Yeah, well, what do you do when you grow up on an organic farm? You know, you most of the people I knew who grew up on organic farms also had back to the land hippie parents and like also went off to get PhDs and <laughs> live in major global cities. So maybe, maybe I'm not so unique in that. But there aren't many of us to start with, so that might make me. Unique. What is that experience like on in the farm? What, what maybe the farm? Yeah, well, maybe that's the. I mean, it was very, like, it was exactly what you would think. It was, uh, uh, yeah, like, you know, pulling or, well, maybe the non-glamorous parts were, like, pulling the weeds and spreading the organic fertilizer, like cow poop. Uh, but the glamorous parts were uh, all of my neighbors and friends had horses. So there was a lot of, like, galloping horses bareback through the fields and, uh. like, fording rivers and things like that, which was pretty exciting. Oh, like Oregon Trail. Uh, but safe. I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> with, with, <laughs> with modern <laughs> medicine. <laughs> I don't think half of them died from dysentery and shit like that. It's not cool, Brandon. No, no animal, no animal killer ever killing. Like no, you had, you had to do that at all. So not so our fa our farm was strictly plants, uh, I but I had a friend who uh, her who moved with her mother to Maine when she was in high school. So her mother's brother had been a back-to-the-land hippie. And then when, uh, when her mother retired from teaching school in Long Island, she followed him up to Maine and bought a farm. One summer they decided to raise, I believe it was 
1,500 or 2,000 chickens. And uh, this was the summer we were 16, and she slaughtered them all uh, on her own in their uh, USDA-certified slaughterhouse in their converted garage. Wow, they have like a... High wing competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so we. I remember this one day when we, my mom was driving us both to the movies because uh, it was hot and the movies were were cool. And uh, she got in the car. She was covered in blood. Oh. Uh, so that was a uh, yeah. But but at the same time, when you live in the country, even if you're not farming animals, you know people who are, and that's you know. You I thought know. you were gonna say. Sometimes you're just covered in blood. That's what you're going to say. Like, Wait, so the USDA just comes around and is like, all right, you just come around to stamp, or you have to like schedule it? I don't know. That's surprising. You can just get a garage approved. I <laughs> didn't ask too many questions, but they had the USDA stamp on their meat packages. So It was delicious chicken. It was, it was pasture-raised. They were in these little, like, cages that were like it was like maybe 10 or 20 chickens to like 10 by 10 cage and they would like move it from spot to spot every day oh, wow. yeah it was pretty them. elaborate hmm? so you can't name them though get attached no i don't think so yeah, you name nah, she had horses quick. to get attached to because oh, everyone had horses yeah. yeah this is argentina we don't eat those here where horses yeah they eat horses argentina yeah it's big big down there south uh, america meanwhile all right, we're, we're almost done. DJ, were you, were you about to say something? Um, I always like picking Danya's mind, so I mean, it, it, can, it can go on forever. Maybe maybe I'll reserve one, one last thing. I'm not in a rush. Well, that's <laughs> great. Thank you. I love you. But we also try to fit within this I window. Know, know. Um, but feel free to stay uh, after, after we're recording, by all means. Um, it, it, it's It's... What past obvious? What is it ubiquitous? What what's past obvious? It's just common knowledge that um, the social upheaval that um, social media has uh, struck upon the the larger populace um, in terms of uh, people's interpersonal uh, relations with one another. So. Um, what is your take on that? Is there is does that speak to a larger uh, theme when it comes to technology? Um, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Are we becoming androids ourselves, or something worse? Go. So I have a friend and colleague who uh, uh, is. Uh, the editor-in-chief for this website called Real Life Magazine that actually just recently published an essay I wrote. Um, The reason the magazine is called Real Life is that it was originally primarily about digital technologies and internet culture. Um, And his sort of argument is that the internet is real life too, right? which we is a great argument, we right? Say the yeah. is, we say the internet is not real. It's not real. No, but I, I think that's I think that's what we see. Like the influence that social media has had potentially over things like elections, I think really should force us to acknowledge the fact that what goes on Reading on the internet is real. is real life. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. We, it's we, not we, material life, but it is life that has consequences yeah, for yeah, for social policy and for for healthcare policy, for our well being, for our political situations. Everything. So that's what I would say about that, is that this separation is very artificial um, and that recent events should 
force us to reflect on you know what we're doing online and the 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 structures and the institutions that we're interacting with online and you know thinking about holding them accountable to the standards to which we hold institutions and individuals in other parts of our lives accountable to it appears the internet is just the outlet for you not to behave Yes. as humanely that's as, how as people you use like. it mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't always mean you you become a troll or whatnot but there are just certain norms um that are commonplace on the internet or on you know whatever forums or twitter or whatever that is just not uh, uh it's, it's not it's not polite in polite society so it, it is a completely different existence when we say the internet is not real we I say that more defensively, kind of like as a sad old person, like, oh, shit, everything is changing. I can't believe this is really happening. Like, that's kind Just of... Just wait till you're in your 30s. I, oh, God. Don't tell me about that. I know. Because we came in at a... at, at that crucial we're, point. We're the last. Right, where we had... It was, much, it was much more physical existence, and then right before social media got really big. So... It's just jarring to see because now, like my younger siblings, like they just—I don't know—they're on Snapchat more than they Zombies. talk to each other. Um, <laughs> so I can see just both sides of it. I remember when I used to play with action figures and, and watch Dragon Ball Z. Like they don't—they don't do all, they don't do that type of stuff. Well, if 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 calling the internet real life is not the best fit, we can at least acknowledge, I think, that it's social life. Right, second that there is second life. Uh, second life. That was so a thing, right? That was a it was reference. a thing. Yeah, there's a bunch of academic papers and a couple of books written about it. Yeah, people get married on there and everything. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the rules of sociality still apply, right? People still have egos, and people still get offended, and people are still trying to push the boundaries, but there's this sort of extra layer of anonymity that maybe changes how far we're willing to push. But it's still social, right? You still see people forming alliances and forming enemies and and sort of uh, taking certain people seriously and and, uh, feeling justified in putting others down, right? Uh, And in ways that often sort of map onto our uh, our gendered and racialized ways of categorizing, ca- categorizing people in other parts of our life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there, there's certainly continuity. Maybe it's not real, but it's still social. It has its own bit of reality. Maybe it has its own norms of sociality. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. It definitely has its own structures and interplays that are similar to the real world, but yet of of the internet beast. I would say that they're connected to or continuous with. They're they're not completely separate, right? I mean, we we no. interact across these formats, but yeah. Thanks for the specificity. I can never say that word. Yeah. Jeez. Say it again. <laughs> no, DJ. I won't, I won't embarrass myself on the podcast. Okay. Any further. <laughs> uh, an awesome podcast. I think we're going to close it out, DJ. I've I've been learned. You've learned me. Excellent. I feel uh, edified and grown. Uh, as do I. Indeed. Mm. Thank mm. you guys so much. It was a pleasure. Is there anything that you would like to pub before uh, we sign out? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you're interested in finding out more about the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, you can visit our website at thebrooklyninstitute.com. And I am teaching a couple of classes coming up, one actually on Donna Haraway. We got a little taste of of some of her ideas today. Um, And a class on science, race, and colonialism, both four weeks long in July. 
uh, and both in New York City. So I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners if they're interested in uh, anything we've talked about today or in any of my classes. Awesome. Get ready this summer. It's coming. Donna Haraway. It's going to be a hot summer. (laughs) It will. Awesome. So you can also, I guess, check in with us, too. If you'd like. I don't know if we're as erudite and interesting as You guys know how to find me now, so... Okay. <laughs> just bring her back. <laughs> we'll bring her back. If, 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 if you guys, you know, are desperate for better conversation <laughs> than we normally have. But thank you for listening. Two in a bottle, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast app, and Stitcher. That's the number two in the bottle. Um, Brandon and DJ. We try our best. That's the that's the best you can do. That's all you can do. So all you can do. We'll be back next week. We we're flames. We're on a we're on a run. Right We're going. So appreciate you guys for listening. Keep listening and be on the lookout for the next podcast too. Ooh.